0: Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next Killer Woman. Welcome to Killer Women podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author, Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Debra's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best Of list in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, United Theater, in Savoy, Savoy Bookstore, and numerous Main Street re- revitalization—oh my goodness, revitalization projects! Excuse me—in Rhode Island and the Catskills. Deborah serves on the governing and advisory boards of the American Film Institute. Greenwich International Film Festival, New York Botanical Garden, Greenwich Historical Society, and the Prasad Project. Deborah holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Whew, you are such a qualified lady. Welcome, Deborah.
1: Hi, hi, thank you so
0: much for having me, Danielle.
1: Very happy to see you again over the ethers.
0: Exactly. So happy to have you. So excited to talk about Reef Road, uh, which I'm seeing everywhere. It's getting lots of exciting advanced buzz that you can tell us about. But first, 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 tell our listeners about Reef Road.
1: Sure. So um, I like to say the road to Reef Road was long. Uh, In uh, December, exactly 74 years ago, December of 1948, my mother's best friend was murdered. It was December the 10th. It was a Friday night in Pittsburgh. My mother was supposed to be there that night at her friend's house. Uh, As I said, it was a Friday night and the girls were 12 and she ended up being home alone. And by the time the parents came home at 1130 at night, there was a trail of blood going from the kitchen to the dining room, the telephone table, was tipped over and she'd been stabbed 36 times. She was not yet dead. She died at the hospital and this has remained an unsolved crime. So it's something that's always percolated in my head. As you would know, there's a very real syndrome. When people exist, let's call it next door to violence, when something really terrible happens to someone you love you were affected as well. If you think about the writer, Dominic Dunn, his daughter was murdered in Hollywood in 1984, and he completely pivoted his life around after this murder to become uh, this reporter at what became the biggest criminal trials that went on for years, including O.J. Simpson and Michael Skakel and on and on. And I think it was very much a result of what happened to his daughter and his frustration with the 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 whole process. Then if you think about Michelle McNamara, she wrote that book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Mm-hmm. There was a girl who had been murdered in her hometown when she was growing up. And she became what later, uh, well, it... It, so, they were called disparagingly in my mother's era. The people who were running around trying to solve the murder of my mother's friend were disparagingly called citizen detectives. By the time of Michelle McNamara, it, it was a much more respectable term. So, she wrote this book. She died in the process, um, but she was instrumental in really solving uh, a case of a serial killer who came to be known as a state killer. So, yeah. you know.
0: I read her book. It's a, that's a fabulous book too. And she did die, unfortunately, but before seeing that guy. um, She
1: did, she did. So for me, it's always been in my consciousness that this is what happened to my mother's friend. I've known that my mother has had certain uh, nervousness at home. You know, the, the home alarm system is a very good thing for someone like my mother. It Mm -hmm. has really given her a lot of comfort because for my mom, she always perceived that someone could come from the outside into your home and do harm. Right. So in March of 2020, uh, COVID joined us in the world. We didn't know what was happening. I happened to be, we have a house in Florida. I was down in Florida and we were kind of grounded there. So I began the research process into this real murder. and. Believe it or not, now there's a lot of material on the internet because you know yeah. everything is uploaded into the um, into the cloud. And as I was researching it, I thought I don't want to write this as nonfiction. I like to write fiction anyway. I think you can get to the essence of what you're talking about without all the details, factual details. Yeah. For example, the real murdered girl had two brothers. Uh, I started writing this with the girl having two brothers, but someone who read it early on said, well, what's the point of the additional brother? Because one brother was and has remained a suspect in this unsolved crime to this day. And so my reader was absolutely right. There was no purpose for this extraneous brother. It just muddied the works. And that's what you can do in fiction, where if you're writing nonfiction, you really just have to report it as it was. So I began the research process, which then turned into what became Reef Road. And quick description, it's a, a dual narrative set in Palm Beach during the COVID lockdown spring of 2020. And it's the story of a writer on the one hand, who's researching the murder of her mother's best friend. And it's a story of a younger woman who's married to a very handsome fellow from Argentina. And a couple weeks into the pandemic lockdown, he's last seen by security cameras in his face mask getting on a plane for Buenos Aires. And because of the border closures, because of COVID, the wife can't follow. So you are tracking the story of the writer and the wife in -hmm. this same town, in this claustrophobia of COVID, and you're trying to unravel what one has to do with the other.
0: And, you know, I mean, he got on, the husband, Miguel, got on that plane with the children. So she's now separated from her two children, which, you know, that is kind of every mother's worst nightmare. And because she's not a citizen of Argentina, um, she can't, she's not allowed to go there. But of course, he, he was able to travel with the children. So that's terrifying. Um, so that's it. so that's interesting. So clearly, the writer perspective is you know is very much sort of autobiographically um, inspired. And I agree with you on the on the point. Plus, when we write fiction, we get to imagine what the conversations would look like and how it was you know and and much more about sort of how that impacted the character's mother. We get to you know because the character, of course, because if it impacts the mother, then it obviously impacts the character, right? Because we're all very influenced by our parents and particularly as it seems our mothers. Um, so I'm curious about the other side of that. So, you know, it, made sense, it makes total sense to me that that was sort of the, the inspiration for that, the writer's side. What, you know, was, can you sort of look at what the seed was for the the, the woman um, who, you know, the, um, the wife? Is there how right. that came to you? So- yeah, I would
1: say I'm a great lover of film noir. There's a very noir aspect to Linda Alonzo's story. I uh, I think I rewatched uh, not Body Double, although that's a good one. I rewatched Body Heat. That's the one that set right next to Palm Beach in Lantana, Florida with Kathleen Turner and William Hurt. If you haven't seen it in a while, you should rewatch it. And if you know in noir, the woman is always up to something. Uh, so there's a, a shadow of doubt hanging around Linda Alonzo from the get-go. She's 40, which I would consider young at my age. Me too. <laughs> She's quite beautiful. And she has this perfect husband, perfect children, but as we all know, uh, when everything seems to be so perfect, you better guess it is not. So, you know, there are funny things in her story. There's a lag in her reporting the the fact that her husband and children are missing, which is a funny little thing to do. It's an odd thing, you know, she falls asleep. She's so distraught, she falls asleep. <laughs> right,
0: it doesn't quite ring true to us, right. And then she, um, you know, there's a, the, she sort of befriends uh, accidentally a police officer, which, you know, once you have a police officer in your vicinity, everything, every little hole in your story gets sort of blown up because, and you you know you let him into your um, into sort of see what's going on, and that is that is sort of raises the stakes for her. Um, and yes. yeah, it is. I mean, I think we do all differ. We do all differ in how we respond to really acute stress. But falling asleep tends seems to be low on the list of things that we would yeah. do. In that, it's moment. not in my
1: stress response repertoire. Neither. The other thing I was playing with was, it it was sort of meta, you know, in a way, well, so the writer's sections really read like journal entries, and the sections of the wife read like a book within a book, so you kind of get the feeling that the writer is writing this book, but you can't really tell, I think, for a while, if Linda Alonso's story is really playing out in Palm Beach, nearby to the writer or is it this just completely made up in her head because the writer of course is very cerebral and it was very interesting playing with some of those meta aspects of the writer because she's very self-referential to the reader. Mm -hmm. She Mm -hmm. really does talk about writing techniques. She talks about real murders. She talks about a whole host of things. You're with her in her mind and it was one of those things that I was writing. I thought, does this even work? Is anybody even gonna get it? But you know how it is. You kind of, at a certain point, you have to write what you're writing. You, right. you have to keep going, you have to commit. And right. so I've been very pleasantly surprised that no one has
0: complained about that. In fact, they've kind of liked it. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually I think this is she is such an interesting character too. The write, The writer is, you know, and I think probably there's some, you know, there's some insanity. Um, whether it's diagnosable or not in all writers, because we spend so much of our lives inhabiting, you know, other brains, if you will. Um, but, that, you know, this writer in particular, like she, you know, she's, a, she's quirky, right. She, she's not been married and she has obviously has, or has no children and um, you know, she has a dog and I mean, she, you know, um, who she talks to. And I feel like there's, you know, there's a lot of the sort of, those details that make us also sort of wonder what's, you know, what is exactly going on with her? There's no sort of like, this is, both characters are somewhat unreliable. Um, Very much so.
1: Which makes her fun. Mm -hmm. And I think the redeeming characteristic of each character is her ability to love. The writer very much loves her dog and Linda very much loves her children. Yes. After yes. that, you know, it's a little bit of a toss up of who they are. Right. Um, and of course, my mother, who's very much still alive, I had to let her know, you know, listen, mom, for dramatic purposes, I made the, the writer and her mother a lot crazier than we are.
0: <laughs> so,
1: right. Oh, that's another
0: fun of fiction, right? You've okay got it right. Yeah. yeah did she read it? Has your mother read it? She has read it and I
1: think she's glad it's been written. It is very tough material for her. So some of the things I can say, um, it's based on a real case. The primary suspect in the real case always has been the girl's brother. He is still alive. I don't refer to the case. I don't name it. It is not hard to figure out what it is if anybody wants to go down a research rabbit hole. Uh, but I think for my mother, a couple of things along the way have really kind of lessened her burden. There's a, there's a thing in the story where the writer connects with a prosecutor who reopens the case. Mm-hmm. That really happened. Uh, right. We have a friend who's a prosecutor. I was talking to you earlier offline. We go to the Catskill Mountains, Mm -hmm. Uh, lower mountains than where you are in beautiful montana but they're gorgeous mountains part of the Appalachian chain and we have a dear friend there who ran the new york state prosecutors training institute and when i was telling him this story in 2008 which was at that point 60 years after the real crime and i told him all the details he said it was the brother i said why do you say that he said, you don't stab someone 36 times unless it's personal. And you know, the ca- he got the case reopened. That Interesting. case, they, they looked at the file. They saw all this information about the brother, which I've put in the book. And um, they found fabric in a box yeah. in property room, which, you know, these all these cops got excited. They sent the box, the fabric to Quantico, Virginia to the FBI. Yeah. Library. They wanted a 60 year old DNA conviction. Yeah. but it was compromised. It's you know, why DNA lasts or doesn't last, what it last, what it remains mm-hmm. on. Like you think about uh, the Romanovs, you know, they're always exhuming bodies and is this a Romanov or not a Romanov? and they pull a hair out of the head of somebody. Um, but the fabric was degraded. There was yeah. no DNA to be had. So I feel like this will remain unsolved forever. On the other hand, I feel like in a certain way, I've said something about this girl and her life. So
0: she's not unknown to the world, right. even though it's not her name. Right, right. No, I and I think that's important. And I I mean I think that is an interesting, it's always interesting to hear the prosecutor, because that, you know, the that's a lot of times to stab somebody. So my um, you know, our inclination is also like you said, to sort of think, well, that's very personal and and who had access to the house and 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 the thing about this book, since we're talking about you know one of the suspects, is clearly this is not a who done it right? this is this is a very different story. so we're not we're not ruining anything about the sort of the fabulousness of Reef Road by talking about this this case and who was the suspect and whatever, because there's because I you know the I spent a lot of this book being like and it's good. it's it makes it it's adds momentum, it makes it compulsive. I'm like, what is what are these two women all about what is happening here you know and you know i do this thing where i tab all these my the fun spots i i always do that in all the books i read like i like to see all those tabs. i know lots of little places things i love but anyway um but i i mean that is that is sort of what's really fun about the book is it's it's a different type of you know thriller and suspense novel so um you know and i and I'm, i'm embarrassed to admit this is my first um, of your books that I've read, but I, you know, obviously, I'm. You have incredible accolades, and I look forward to get to reading um, the others. Is this generally how? I mean, clearly, this is unique in the fact that it had you had a very personal connection to this to crime. But do how do stories generally sort of um, manifest for you? Is it a nugget, a person?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I've this will be my third published book. I'm working on a fourth. <clears throat> the nugget of each is different. So for finding Mrs. Ford, that's a story that takes place in two time periods. Uh, And it it begins in in two places, two very different places. And it begins in a gorgeous seaside resort community where the FBI shows up at the home of Mrs. Ford to ask her about an Iraqi Chaldean man. And Chaldeans are a Catholic group from Iraq, a very specific group. And she claims that she doesn't know him. And they of course say, well, that's a little funny. He just took a plane from Baghdad to Boston and we picked him up on way to your house. You go back, so this is 2014. It's right Mm -hmm. at the moment when ISIS is first in the papers and ISIS is marauding over the North of Iraq, killing a lot of people, including many Chaldeans. You go back to 1979 Detroit, which is 35 years earlier. She's a college student. And through meeting this kind of glamorous, exotic other girl, Annie Nelson, who's kind of a Zelda Fitzgerald character, uh, young Susan Ford takes a very sketchy job at a very sketchy disco on the edge of Detroit, which happens to be frequented by Iraqi Chaldean men. They're a big population in Detroit. Interesting. So you know what you know what the setup there. She's lying. She obviously right. knows this guy. Why is he looking for her thirty five years later? Right. Why is she lying? Right. So that book plays out. You know, uh, with that unraveling, the second book, Ruby Falls, is more gothic. And Ruby Falls, weirdly, I've never had this happen before. The first two chapters just came to me. There's a cave in near Chattanooga, Tennessee called Ruby Falls. And the first, the beginning where a little girl also by the name of Ruby is in this cave with her father and the lights are off, which is what they did back in the day in these waterfall caves. And, And the tour guide is saying, you know, when the divers have dived down and they've never been able to find the bottom and the child is paralyzed with fear. She can't tell where the waterfall is. She doesn't want to fall in. And her father lets go of her hand and he abandons her in this cave. And that is sort of the primal trauma for her. And she grows up to become an actress. She marries a tall, dark, handsome stranger she barely knows. And it plays out more like Rebecca. You know, if you remember the beginning of Rebecca where the unnamed character marries uh, Max de Winter. So each book has a different genesis. Um, Yeah. I grew up in Detroit. We have a house in Watch Hill. I was an actress. I've been to Ruby Falls. Nobody left me there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I use bits and pieces and little nuggets of inspiration from my life, but Mm -hmm. for me, it's always a kernel of inspiration. Um, the first book was something I'd been mulling over for a long time. Uh, I had known, uh, a girl when I was in college who was very glamorous and very beautiful and kind of charismatic and a little, you know, wilder. And uh, so I always thought about that female friendship relationship and how, how those relationships influence us perhaps to do things that we might not naturally do.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. Especially as young people. Right. Yes. We don't exactly know who we are. Um, that is exactly right. I did not know who I was. Did not at all. Well, I think that's. I mean, who? What? I mean, my daughter's twenty, almost twenty-three, and I say, how could you? You can't possibly know who you are. I'm fifty-two, and I'm just figuring it out. So you have a lot of time. Oh. You know. No. Um. It's well. That is. So those are super interesting, and it it does like you are clearly very woven into these stories in one way or another, which I love. Um. Because I I don't know that everybody writes. Um, things that feel so sort of like from their own fabric, which, you you know, which clearly you do. Now, when you're writing, when you start a book, are you, do you have a sense for how the things come together in the end? Are you a plotter? How does that, how does the process work? No,
1: I'm more of a pantser. So, uh, so with, let's talk about Reef Road. It began with the research of the real crime. Uh, Layered over that was actually being in Palm Beach at the time and- It was hot. It was hotter than normal. It was buggier than normal. So all of that started playing into, you know, the creation of the story and then wanting to play with kind of this noir element. Uh, So what I do, I do a few things. I, I definitely research. I definitely do notes. I take copious notes, but my notes are more along the lines of what if this what if that? Mm-hmm. Let's say it's a story about a woman who goes out in a boat and disappears. I don't have any of those, but let's say it's that. So, and let's say her name is Susan. It's always a good name. So what if Susan goes out in the boat and there's somebody out there? What if someone's hiding on the boat? What if she doesn't really get on the boat? I start doing those what if mm-hmm which generally lead to where I'm going a little bit through trial and error, through exploration. I also do another weird thing where I print out, let me grab it. I print these day at a page.
0: Oh yeah, Yeah. yeah. Or a month at a
1: page. Yeah. And when I go through, I start writing things down. So particularly whatever I said there, Uh, Ingrid moves to Los Angeles. So particularly if I have a non-linear story, this is a very weird and tactile Mm -hmm. visual thing. So finding Mrs. Ford, you track an object. There's a necklace that is spoken of and the story is non-linear twice. You're back and forth from 2014 and 1979. Yeah. Crescendo. And then you need to look at it again from another mm-hmm. perspective to see what's
0: interesting.
1: Uh huh. Uh huh. So, if a necklace, for example, disappears on, I don't know, July the 6th of 1979, mm-hmm. you have to really, and you know this as a writer, you can't then see the necklace on July the 15th when you're telling the story again. Right. So, stuff like that, that's where something as weird as this yeah I makes the reason printing it out is easier for me to just scan that on my computer. I completely write on a computer.
0: yeah, yeah but having the the sort of the 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 spatial um, you know representation yeah. of time, especially if you're doing multiple timelines, I can absolutely see because even within the timeline, you' you know your character is thinking back to something that happened before or right. you know or and that is you really have to sort of figure out where am I in this moment and when did that thing happen compared to this moment uh that yeah that makes total but sense because
1: it will mess you up mm. And the other thing I would say about writing is for me my little brain the actual passage of time is very helpful for me to solve problems I'm not a I'm not the slowest writer. I mean, but I'm not the fastest writer. And sometimes I'll figure things out. And I think this is true for everyone. When I'm not writing. Oh, or of course. Or something will right. come to me in the middle of the night. No. And with one book, there was a moment where uh, a character sets an alarm. But something happens in the middle of the night. And I realized she can't set the alarm because of that thing that happened in the middle of the night. The other people in the house would know that alarm would be ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing the next mm-hmm. morning. So that, it just seemed like a natural thing to set the alarm, but right. it was a little bit of time and reflection. I wasn't even reflecting. It just came out of the blue, the, the
0: right solution. It's your, sub, your subconscious is at work, right? All that time. I think it's like, when, it's like you said in the middle of the night, you're drinking, you know, you wake up with like, it's that sort of half-asleep brain that's so wonderful about not processing all the stuff that we're processing all day, which is, you know, the laundry or the kids or yeah. whatever. All those things are, but it's the thing—it's processing that stuff that's way deep when you're not awake enough to be processing the sort of minutia. Which I think is why you got to keep a pen or paper by your bed, unless you know, if your husband totally. you know, is one one who gets mad when you turn the light on, which mine is. Um, so you know, I think um, I mean not madman, but frustrated <laughs> does not like light in the middle of the night but you know you've got to keep something by your bed so you can capture those moments because they they I I, I used to think oh it's so good it's so smart I'll remember it in the morning and then nope you never do
1: you never, never do so I keep a, a pen and a pad by the bed and what I do is I have one of those teeny little alarms with yeah. where if you press the button there's a little light it's yes. enough for you to write a couple words that you can actually read the next. Day. I know
0: that I've done that too. I've actually taken notes, you know, like in the dark, dark, and woke up and they've been sort of all in one little lump, and it's taking quite a long time. You write over yourself. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. My your sense of space isn't quite right when you're blind. It's it's an interesting. It's totally true, but it is. I think that's really smart, and I think that's that's really yeah. useful. So do you do you sort of have a sense like you know the what if part of it, are are there, if you're in that stage where you're sort of stuck, you have a lot of what ifs and you're not really sure where you're going, you're somebody who probably needs to walk away and, and garden or hike or do something yeah. else.
1: I definitely do that. I mean, I try to schedule writing time on my computer or my phone. I try to block it out. Yeah. I generally try to block out three to six hour chunks. I'm after six hours is a lot. And under three, I feel like I haven't really sorted out my head to even get there yet, and it helps me to put it on my calendar, and then yeah. I do have to walk away and do other things, and, um, you know, I lay out papers everywhere, I, I just like the visual sense of it, I write, I'm in a cool space, so I'll
0: show you. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I can see a little of the reflection in the mirror this is or in a the window.
1: Conservatory. Ah, a and beautiful. I'm overlooking a river here. Oh my god. Which you can see and you can see my table. Oh, this it's beautiful. used to be we used to have a lot of dinners here. Yeah. But I sort of have taken it over and uh I have a little home office right off the kitchen, but I find that is kind of you know, busy central. And this is right. at the other house. It's a little room we added on. And um and it also has a radiant heat floor because it's very cold
0: right now. Right. But,
1: yeah. And I'm in a glass room. So the radiant heat
0: is something. I know. I we I just remodeled the basement where I am and I, I had bookshelves put in and all this and I have radiant floor. And I actually like to write when it's like 76 degrees. So I have a little room that's glassed oh. in. Um, you know, and actually you can see mine too. It's my little, um, glassed in room over there. Oh, I love that. And I can make that really warm and have it be much more sort of normal temperatures, um, in this sort of bigger room with where the books are. So, right. Oh, that's interesting.
1: So one of the things I do now we're talking about body heat and body comfort, I keep a heating pad out here when it gets really cold. I'll just put the heating pad behind my back. Mm -hmm. It can
0: get chilly out here, even with the radiant heat. And your fingers, like, I often, if my fingers are cold, then it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of, for somebody who lives in Montana, I'm pretty wimpy about cold, so um, I'll have, yeah, I have a big, I have a few big sweaters I like to wear, but I do, I really just prefer it to be sort of lovely and warm, um, but I want to go back to talking about the pandemic, because I feel like, God, what an interesting time to be a writer, um, and I, there's, a, you know, lots of people are sort of, you know, lots of writers are very mixed on how it was to write during that time and also to write about that time. So tell us about that, you know, both writing during and writing about.
1: Yeah, um, well, writing during turned out to be a very good thing because I was quarantined or what do we call it? Sheltering in place in Palm Beach, it was beautiful. So we have a house down there and I was with my husband, my uh, adult daughter, Alexandra, her husband, Cody, and granddaughter Annabelle, who just turned one, and three dogs. So the house was bedlam because nobody was coming to help. We were there on our own, and I happened to be a little tidier than everybody. So I bought a Roomba on Amazon, and I had a romance with my Roomba. I named him Orlando after the the, prota- the, well, the male character, I don't know if I'll call him a protagonist in Ruby Falls. So Orlando was my friend. He kept, because we had, with three dogs, we had like dog hair tumbleweed rolling around the house. And so that helped. I would lock <laughs> myself in a room and I would write and I would let Orlando do his thing in the house. I had a lot of time to write. And setting it in the pandemic I thought it was a very useful vehicle for a thriller. It was like wartime. Uh, It it imposed a set of constraints on the character, such as Linda Alonso not being able to follow her husband um, that really boxed the story in nicely. Uh, Alice McDermott, in her new book on writing, which is called What About the Baby? She makes a distinguishing feature between writing nonfiction and fiction. With nonfiction, the story is known. So you have to take the whole story and small it down and get it on the page. With fiction, the story is infinite. You can go anywhere. So the, your first task as a fiction writer is to impose some limits, you know, box it in a little bit. The pandemic worked very well that way. Yeah. The other thing, looking back on it, Uh, And it's not a huge part of the story, but it is, it's the setting. I also feel like when you're writing kind of day and date about something that's actually going on, it's a little bit of history. So there's a moment where the writer looks at the television and she sees that ship coming into New York Harbor and it was called Comfort and it was supposed to be a hospital ship. And I remember seeing that and thinking, This really is like a war. I mean, there there were field hospitals in Central Park. I know, yeah. Like it in the Western world in our lifetimes. So Mm -hmm. just having those little snippets, they're tiny in the book, but it really contextualizes. And I think those things, like, like 9 11, when they pop up, you have a sense of where you were. Um, so I do think it was important to set it then. I know a lot of writers have tried to put books before and after. Yeah. It's although after
0: difficult. is never the same, after is never the same either. Um, it's almost like, you know, it's sort of hard to ignore, although I'm, I'm doing my best at the moment to just ignore it.
1: Yeah. Well, that becomes futuristic, but it's also like technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about constraints in a book, like with where we falls, I said it in the 1960s and the 1980s, and you have a whole kettle of fish just eliminated because you don't have to figure out the cell phone and the right. computer and the, the right. cameras. The little girl who's abandoned in the cave. There are no security cameras. There are no credit card records. There are no ways for, when the tour guides look at her that they don't know who she came in with. They can't remember, and right. there's no record. So that that. Right. Cons- so different.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that is fun. It's, it's really fun to, to, you know, lose the cell phone, um, because it, you know, and all the CCTVs, which are making our lives, you know, so much harder. <laughs> but I'll, I mean, better. The, and that you sort of mentioned the, the history part. the other thing about uh, that I really appreciate about refred was, there's the whole bit chunk of history about Argentina, and the dirty war, and you know, the horrors of that time. And particularly for women. Um, So, what sort of that's that you know is a whole different facet of the story. And how did you decide to incorporate that?
1: Gosh, how did I? I wanted. I don't know why I put that in. I'd been to Argentina with uh, one of my best friends whose family is from there. I had visited that detention center which was in the middle of Buenos Aires, which that was the most chilling part. This is where, you know, in the period of this military government and they were taking all these people, mainly students and uh, teachers and union leaders, And they would blindfold them and drive them around and drive them around. So a lot of the people thought they were being taken far away from home. They were right in the middle of the city, you know, like that hiding in plain sight. It was an old military base. And um, so you go through it, it's it's a whole tour site, and you see the letters that these women, uh, some of whom were pregnant, they made them write letters to their parents saying, you know, dear mom and dad. things have been, I don't like it here anymore. I'm going to Paraguay or wherever they said they were going. And then the woman would give birth and they would take the baby, give it up for adoption and they would throw her alive out of
0: an airplane. Unbelievable, right, unbelievable. What a weird way to- And there's a huge uh, postscript
1: script going on now. You have the grandmothers of these babies that were given up for adoption who are suing for people in their 40s now to submit to DNA testing. It's a famous case of uh, a brother and a sister raised by a very prominent family adopted at that time. And this association of mothers in the white headscarves, they want their DNA records. And these adults now are saying, we don't want to do it. So it's a moral conundrum. right? I, I don't make any comment about what should be done
0: about it now but it's fascinating well i think it is fascinating it's another sort of um way of looking at the you know the this the this is a lot of it explores you know women and their um sort of the ways in which we are you know traditionally limited um you know controlled by men um and that is another you know that's a really horrible example but of course it happens also within you know the, you know the marriage um and i you know i think linda and miguel's marriage is i mean in some ways right he's you know i think the argentinian he's trad- he's more traditional and uh, and that you know limits her freedom as well so yeah it's is a, it's a you know it's a wonderful commentary um the other you know so the other part of the story is the idea of writing um about a writer, you know, so that's a different, I mean, it's, you know, obviously we read those books where you know, one of the characters is a writer, but that also seems like it must be a really, must have been sort of an interesting thing to explore because it's not you, um, although, right, you are bringing to it all of your sort of writerly things. So, you know, what was that fun to sort of...
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun and I think you know writing for me is always informed by having been an actress back in the day and a lot of the techniques I learned of delving into a character, and it was always as an actor it's always about bringing yourself into the character bits of yourself. Uh, Back when I. I did the TV movie about Ted Bundy with Mark Harmon. He played Ted Bundy and I played the woman who married him. And so when you're in a moment like that and you're researching this woman and you're thinking, well, I have to make a decision about why on earth she would marry him. And the decision I made was she didn't know. She didn't believe it. That's just what I decided. That was the piece of me that I could bring to it that I just, for me to have married a serial killer I would have to just not
0: believe it I so, would hope that would be true for most women but yes that makes, you would
1: think, think that she wouldn't just find it kind of a hot character trait? Yeah, I right yeah right turn on no so with um writing about being a writer I did bring pieces of myself mm-hmm. but exaggerated i i can be a worry wart and a thinker and an obsessor in the middle of the night i allowed those characteristics to run rampant it's like if you're playing a murderer as an actress chances are you've never murdered anybody let's hope mm-hmm. but chances are you have felt every single human emotion available to any of us So you pick one, jealousy, and you you work it. You kind of, it's you know that's why writing's exhausting. I'm sure you agree because you're going there. Yeah. Go dig into that thing that normally in our real lives we're not going to allow ourselves to dig in. Right. Right. Like obsession is kind of a mental, you know, wheel. Uh, Oh yeah. Gauge that, and the writer lives a lot in that space.
0: She, yeah, she does. She's a really interesting character. Um, I, you know, and I thought that was, you know, and of course, um, not giving anything away, but as you know, as the story between them develops, I thought, you know, there's so many interesting, wonderful things. Another thing, I, you know, I, I mentioned this. I do all these tabs, um, which I love. But there's one, and I wrote it down because I loved it so much. Because this, you know, of course, here we are. It's killer women. Um, this one, <laughs> um, was the quote was a slut she'd once read was a woman with the morals of a man which I thought was so great. You know, it just made me, you know, it made me chuckle and think. Well,
1: that's right. Because that, that refers to one of the characters who might be, you know, a little bit sexually active. And um, why is that? I have read that. And I think it just needs to be said because I
0: do think we still feel that way. Yeah. We're, right. We've, we're, maybe we're getting better, but not, not that much better. So another thing with the book is, is sort of inherited behaviors, right? And uh, not just, you know, violence, and there's the question of nurture and nature there, but also sort of personality disorders um, and the like. And, you know, I, I guess I want to know, like, wh- what do you think? Like, you know, do these things, are they inherited? Is it sort of we inherit them because we watch a role model, you know, behave that way? Um, you know, what do you think? I think a lot of things about that.
1: And I just read an extraordinary book called It Didn't Begin With You. And it's about epigenetics. And I had never heard the term epigenetics until I finished Reef Road. So Reef Road does deal heavily with generational trauma. Yeah. And it's a real thing. And I think we know that there's cultural generational trauma. If you look at you know, the genocide of the Native Americans or the enslavement, of, of people who came from Africa, there is inherited trauma from all exactly. of that. So the way epigenetics works, it's a little bit different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: With my mother's best friend being murdered. Okay, I'm gonna, let's look at it this way. I know my mother's best friend was murdered. I know the effect it had on her. I know the effect it had on me. That's a kind of generational trauma. But in this book, they talk about inherited trauma that people don't know about. So for example, one of the cases in the book, there was a um, seven-year-old Cambodian boy. He and his parents had uh, immigrated to the United States from Cambodia. And the boy was acting out very violently. He was smashing his own head on things and wow. hitting things with a coat hanger. The parents took went to see a therapist And it came out, the little boy was not in the room, it came out that the little boy's grandfather had been bludgeoned in the head to death by the Khmer Rouge in that period of the killing fields. And the family wanting to move forward in the United States of America, this beautiful new life they had, had just buried the whole thing. Mm. Didn't mention him, didn't tell the kid, The kid had a step-grandfather that he thought was his biological grandfather, and the therapist said, you need to tell your son in an age-appropriate way about his grandfather and what happened, and the parents resisted. They said, no, no, we're here. We're looking forward, and the therapist said, you cannot look forward if you do not, you know." Bring this out into the open with your son. And about a month after it, they put a picture of the grandfather. They spoke again in an age-appropriate way about what happened to him. A month later, the child took the coat hanger and gave it to his mother and said, I don't need to play this game anymore. So right. I do think there's something. Um, they tell about an experiment with mice where one generation of mice when exposed to a certain smell they get an electric shock two generations later (laughs) the mice if they smell that smell have reactions of stress and anxiety
0: so i think
1: we understand yeah Um, i'm not a scientist the book says basically the actual genes don't change but the genetic affect changes Mm -hmm. i don't really i mean i understand the words but i don't know the the details yeah How
0: that could be. That, uh, that is exactly how I've read about it. Is that it? Is that the genes are sort of conditioned to to cause different behaviors or to react differently um, because of you know stresses and stimuli from earlier generations? It's super interesting. I'm look, I'm curious about that book. I will. I'll have to check it out. Um, but I yeah, that it makes total sense to me. And maybe um, yeah, you don't even need necessarily to be to have a violent experience as a child to be you know, impacted by violence in your own history, right? Or your cultural history.
1: Or things um, you don't know, yeah, it's fascinating. Read that book, we can talk yeah. about it. So yes, I do feel, and I will tell you, so this terrible thing happened to my mother's best friend and many years later, one of my daughters, and I won't go into detail because these are young people who were still living, was violently attacked in circumstances very similar, in proximity of relationship very similar, uh, And she survived and she's fine and thank goodness, and it's been a long road to recovery, she's great. But what are the odds that I here in this middle generation would be bookended by these violent home attacks of best friends of my mother and my daughter? It doesn't make any sense Mm. in a logical capacity. I mean, what are we, what's going on with that? So, Mm -hmm. There is something to the epigenetic
0: um, pattern going on. Yeah, So that is really. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's mm. and it impacts. I mean, those. You know, your. I'm sure your daughter. Uh, the impact on her is um, absolutely really intense. Yeah. Um, and you know, another you know sort of theme of the story is a, is about identity, in particular. You know, obviously female identity. Um, And it seems to me that that is also something that really interests you. You were talking about sort of how you find, you know, the thing in common with a a role you're going to play. So, you know, I mean, talk about that. What, you know, when you're writing your characters, how you're discovering their identity and what about that sort of matters?
1: Well, I think we all exist on so many levels and most of us, all the different levels we exist on are within a range of normal. Mm -hmm. you know a range we we might have our moments when we lose it or we're you know we have our high stress or our you know anxiety attacks or whatever but it's still in a range but I think I'm very intrigued by the outliers the people who cross lines the people who have secrets uh, of a magnitude that that most of us don't carry like Ted Bundy he's a different case he's a uh, a psychopath that's a, a particular thing so I mean I always like something about my characters uh but I like playing with who people really are and what it is that they're not revealing to
0: us when we first meet them I, I mm-hmm. would really like that sorry I, I apologize if you can hear my little dogs upstairs barking barking um, I, I, I agree. I think that is a really, I think it is really interesting. And I think you can take a, I think the thing that's fun about being a writer is that nobody is entirely good or entirely evil. And, and that's true, of course, for your characters. Um, and there are things where, you know, you, there's, there's, you know, there's frustration we experience with characters. There's, there's, you know, empathy and sympathy and, you know, occasionally pity, um, and then, you know, and, and disappointment, but it's all there. You know, so those are all wrapped in um, because they're human. And that to me is a sign of, you know, a really well-created um, character. So yeah, that's fabulous. So this is out January 10th. That's January right. 10th. Um, and so tell us, you're. I know you're on social media. Are you also, I'm sure you have a website. Tell us where, where's the best place to find Reef Road? So I
1: have a a great website, uh, DeborahGoodrichRoyce and that lists all my events, including the events I host in Rhode Island at the Ocean House Hotel, and we have to get you there, Danielle, to beautiful, amazing, I beautiful it's hotel. Incredible. Um, I would love to have you there, so we can schedule that. And so I do a whole summer series that's now starting to eke out into off season, and the whole tour schedule's on it's a very robust tour schedule and I'm also very active mainly on Instagram and that's Deborah Goodrich Royce official and we added the official because I had two people impersonating me including a much more beautiful younger more buxom brunette and I'm like why are you inter- I cut you know why pretending- do you want to be me yeah yeah. Okay.
0: Well, since we're on the um, the ocean house, which I have heard about, tell us a little bit about what you do there, because I think that's something that will be of super interest to our um, listeners as well.
1: Yeah. So we're in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, which is a beautiful summer resort, uh, not too far from Newport. So that kind of sets the tone. The ocean house is a big Victorian seaside hotel from the 1860s that my husband and I bought and restored and reopened. And we own with a whole bunch of partners. And this author series is many Wednesdays in the summer and sometimes off season. And we do um, generally a Wednesday evening conversation. We have wine and hors d'oeuvres and people come
0: and it's great. Ah. Sounds amazing. Sign me up. Okay. Well, I would love to talk about that. That sounds fabulous. Okay. Okay, So now that we're, you know, I've devoured Reef Road, I have to ask, what are you working on?
1: What's next? Well, let me tell you. So I got an email several months ago from a man and he said, hi, do you remember me? I was your best boy in survival game. Now that's a very provocative opening line. So best boy in in a movie is the head electrician. It's the term that they use. And survival game was a movie I did. And he went on to give all these little touch points of a dinner we had or running into each other or all these other things. And I thought, I don't remember any of this. And that's kind of interesting. What if it's real? What if it's not real? And it got me thinking, and I'm playing with a book now called Best Boy.
0: Oh my God, of- I love it. It's it sounds yeah. like it just a thriller just served itself up to you via email. And it also sounds like you might have a stalker. So I would say No, no, this guy
1: checked out. He was totally normal. But oh, okay. that might not be where it goes in
0: the book. But uh, right. Well, no, of course not. But I actually just even think just that the whole, you know. The whole email and the fact that it was called survival game. I mean, I so much about yeah, that. That was diverse. the name of the movie. Yeah, we shot that, that in is... Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, California. What um, a fat! What a fabulous hook! You got me. I was your best
1: boy. What a what a thing to say. I mean, you could take that on so many levels.
0: I was. I mean, as a non actor and unfamiliar with that term or anything really about that world, I was like when did you play something called survival game and what would be a, what would a best boy be? Um, but um, yeah, I I think that sounds like a fabulous hook. And I, um, I love the title best boy too, because yeah. it seems very menacing, even though it seems also very benign, right? Yeah. Very dark and menacing. That sounds fabulous. Ah, okay. Deborah, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I loved grief road. I know readers will love it too. Tell us a few of the places I, I've already heard. It's like, You know, it's on the most anticipated. Can you think off the top of your head where it's most? Yeah, it's on the Indie
1: Next list. So uh, libraries across—I mean, bookstores across the country will have it on the Indie Next list for January. Um, It's on the most anticipated
0: books from Zibby Owens. So it's kind of—it's out there. I love it. Well, I hope it sells a million copies because that would be super fun. And in the meantime, I know, right? From my lips to whoever's listening. Um, But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Danielle. Really. Oh, God, so great. And this has been Killer Woman today with our guest, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.